so we are starting a series today in Uptown on the book of Revelation. We are calling it uh, The Revelation, Surviving the Apocalypse. Uh, our sisters and brothers in the Lord at uh, the West Side site are starting a series on Daniel. And Daniel and Revelation are, are very good books to be doing together as Revelation, in fact, takes its structure from some parts of, of Daniel, and both are speaking to uh, the future of everything. And uh, so we, we wanted to do these together. So we're doing Revelation here, doing Daniel in the West Side. The, um, a couple of years ago, I was at, um, so the, ser- the series title is called The Revelation Surviving the Apocalypse, which is a, you know, there, there's a, a, a theme in, in pop culture of surviving the apocalypse. A couple of years ago, uh, my family and I were at uh, Dick's Sporting Goods down in uh, Richfield, and I can't remember what the company was, but you could buy um, an apocal- a zombie apocalypse survival kit, knife and axe. You know, it was a camping gear, but uh, you know, they, were, they were selling it and, and kind of taking advantage of all of the zombie apocalypse and other apocalypse type of things going on in our books and our movies and television programs. Um, and so this, uh, this, this theme of apocalypse in our culture is something that we're going to, to touch on a little bit as we go through the series. The very first verse of the book of Revelation says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his his servants. Now, the first thing I want to address is, is what is this, what is this term revelation? And so the term revelation in the original language is actually the word apocalypse. Technically, the term apocalypse means to uncover or to take out of hiding, to cause something to be fully known, to reveal, to disclose to have a revelation. That's what the term apocalypse means. And so as we think about the book of Revelation, we could ask the question, well, what is being revealed? Well, we see here that it, the first verse says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It, it literally is the revelation from Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. God the Father gave it to him. But it is of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is being revealed. He's one of the things that is being revealed. But there are a number of things that the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, reveals. In addition to Jesus Christ, in addition to God the Father, the book of Revelation reveals hypocrisy and immorality in churches. It reveals the idolatry of false religions It reveals the inability of human government and politics to bring about human flourishing. It reveals the inability of globalization to bring about world peace. It reveals the inability of technology and the markets to bring about global economic prosperity. It reveals the temporal nature of riches and pleasure. It reveals the ultimate source of evil and suffering. It reveals the fate of every human who has ever lived or ever will live. It reveals the end of the world and the end of time as we know it. 
and it reveals the eternal state and a whole host of other things. So the book of Revelation is about revealing, answering questions that humans since time began have been asking. What is my purpose? What is the meaning of all of this? Where is history and time headed? Where does evil come from? Will evil ever be judged? What, will we, what do we do with the suffering that is, exists in the world? If God is just, why isn't he doing something about the evil and suffering in this world? So Revelation really answers all of these big questions. But that's not how we typically think about apocalypse, is it? When we hear the word apocalypse used in our culture, what do we typically think about? And I'm, this isn't a hypothetical, I'm actually asking you. What? Yeah, disaster. Anything else? What, Alicia? Did you say zombies? Yes, zombies. The end of the world. What else? Anything else? Yeah, it's typically a pessimistic, world-ending, and in some cases, world-ending in the lives of individuals, okay? There's some, some pessimistic, cataclysmic uh, destruction that's happening at some scale. So what are some of the examples in, our, in pop culture of apocalypses? Again, not another hypothetical. I know there's some of you out there that watch a lot of TV and movies, so I know we've got some of you out there that can provide some good answers here. What are some apocalypses? The Walking Dead, yes, classic. Any, any fans of The Walking Dead in here? I've watched a couple seasons, and I, I just couldn't make it past season two. Few of you, anybody, other apocalypses? What's that? Yes, the book of Eli, a great apocalypse. Children of Men? I'm not familiar with that one. Movie? All right. One I need to add to the watch list. Others? Mad Max, yeah. Any readers in here? Of course, they all get made into movies or television series. The Road, yeah. The Road is a great one. Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, the whole Left Behind series is literally, yeah. What's that? The Omen. Yeah. We could go on and on. Anybody, were, were there are any Battlestar Galactica fans in here? Okay, a few of you. Yeah. The old series and the new one. All right. Excellent apocalyptic. Mad Max or uh, uh, Breaking Bad. House of Cards, those are apocalypses about individuals. Mad Men, World War Z, we could go on and on and on. Hunger Games, Snowpiercer. But if we ask the question, what is revealed? If these are apocalypses, what are revealed in these stories? What? Yeah, generally, it's, it's some individual or societal problem, usually some social commentary on our culture. They're not really apocalyptic in the terms of the original apocalypse. All of these, the, the term 
Um, I mean, the book of Revelation is not the first written document that talks about uh, the end of the world as we know it. But it is kind of the granddaddy of apocalypses. When people talk about Armageddon, which there have been movies called Armageddon, they think of the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is vastly different, and our culture has created a new genre of apocalypse, or neo-apocalypse, as they are now being called. They don't reveal anything at all, and they're generally pessimistic. And if you think about it, they're out of sync with reality in general. We are living at the safest time in the history of humanity. But we are kind of, at least in pop culture America, we are at this place of fearfulness. We're at this place of fearfulness. And so when we ask the question, why are we drawn to these stories in books, televisions, and movies, there's a few answers out there. One of them is that it's a way for us to consider our inevitable fates, what we see to be our societal problems and where they're going to lead us, but in fictional ways. There is a, and there are cultural critiques, and I'm going to have a critiques. There are, I'm going to have a few quotes today. Um, the first one is a, is a quote from a journalist with the BBC talking about our, in, in, our, our, our captivation uh, around these apocalyptic stories. And he talks about a gentleman named George Romero, who was the writer and director of the first pop culture zombie movie, Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Prior to that, zombies were this, this figure in voodoo religion in South America. Not a, not a popular pop culture centerpiece. So he creates this movie, Night of the Living Dead. And this journalist has this to say. Zombies were a metaphor for everything that bothered Romero about the modern world. In Romero's films, and there are many imitators, however, the monsters are either the cause or a symptom of a complete societal breakdown. When a botched science experiment, a radiation leak, or a glowing meteorite begins zombifying the populace, the result is a pandemic which leaves the world in chaos. Whether this scenario is played out in 28 days later, Zombieland or The Walking Dead, the rule of law ceases to exist. Humanity's last survivors are forced to forage for food in a dystopian desert while trying to become food, trying not to become food themselves. Left out a key word there. It can't be coincidence then the zombies are in vogue during a period when banks are failing, when climate change is playing havoc with weather, pa weather patterns, and when both terrorist bombers and global corporations seem to, be, seem to be beyond the reach of any country's jurisdiction. Zombie stories give people the opportunity to witness the end of the world they've been secretly wondering about while, at the same time, allowing themselves to sleep at night because the catalyst of that end is fictional. I mean, we may be able to buy a zombie apocalypse survival kit at Dick's Sporting Goods, but we all know that when we're in the woods, we're not going to be attacked by zombies. But it is a way for us to think about the troubles and where things seem to be headed in some degree, or at least as the media would like us to think. 
Another quote, this is from the book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, written by Joustra and Wilkinson. Some of the artifacts of popular culture, as apocalyptic or dystopian, aren't about the end of the world exactly. They're more about the end of our world. They're stories that have the distinct sense embedded in them that this social order can't last, that we are, in fact, near the end of something. And so we all sense instability in our culture, economic stability, economic instability, racial instability, um, social, cultural. There are just so many sources of, of instability, or at least what we perceive to be, and the media just continues to feed these things. And so these, these stories are a way of us picturing the end of the world as we know it as a, as a consequence of some or many of the social problems that we have. So there are, there are apocalypses and dystopias. So the dystopias are usually uh, the afterwards of the apocalypse in whatever narrative it might be. So it could be our technology or science that gets us to the dystopia. It could be our um, a political culture that gets us to the dystopia. It could be our, our inability to um, turn around climate change and all those things that gets us to dystopia. It could be the, the uh, economic separation between the super rich and the rest of the world that creates the dystopia. Whatever it might be, these, these, these narratives paint a picture for us to view. But I think also one of the reasons that we're drawn to this is not only because it, it has a way of capturing our fears, all right, um, I think it's also because we are made in God's image. And as humans made in God's image, there is a, a, a need for us to recognize that something is wrong when something is wrong and that there has got to be a better future out there that there's got to be a better future out there. But one of the things that's characteristic about a lot of our modern apocalypses and dystopias is that we don't have solutions anymore. Except in another really popular genre in our pop culture, the superhero movies, right? Somebody external to our world and its problems comes in and solves all of our problems. We long for something to upset the norm to provide a solution. So in literature and in, in, in film, this is called the deus ex machina, the God from something external, the God from something outside. It's an insertion into the norm of something that brings about peace and salvation. But then there are even neo-apocalyptic dystopias about our solutions. Has anybody seen the movie Ex Machina? I haven't seen it yet. I've read a lot about it. Um, But the the gist from what I can tell is that there is this really wealthy technological genius who builds female robots that look and act and think and feel like females. And I get the sense that this guy is really unable to have an intimate relationship with a human being. So he creates a robot 
female, female robots to have relationships with because he can't do it. So it, it's a solution to his problem of being unable to have a human relationship with another human in an intimate way. But it ends up killing him. The robots end up killing him. But the movie's name, Ex Machina, takes a look at and is an example of this idea that, that if we can create something other than us, it will solve our problems, our technology, and our science. But I think the image of God also creates in us, uh, we, we have a yearning for a vision. We need something that explains the problems. But more often than not, in our lives and in these narratives, we, we bring up, we create solutions, just like this movie, Ex Machina. Our solutions usually bring about another set of problems, like the cloud cult song, one by one by one. If you keep trying to fill your holes with the next best thing, well, then the next best thing will give you more and more holes. That is our problem. Think of the Hunger Games. F three great books, four great movies, or was it five great movies? Was part two two movies too, or just the last one? Anyway, everybody familiar with the Hunger Games, I'm assuming, so no, no spoiler alerts after the decades it seems like they've been out. Um, so the resistance fights and fights and fights and fights to take down the Capitol and President Snow. And you get to the end of the movie, and there you have Katniss. She's saved the world, literally. But the new president, she has learned, is the president of the rebellion, is just as evil and twisted as the original president. And she kills her. It's a, it's a great scene. It's a great scene in the book. It's a great scene in the movie. And so the solution they've all been dying for and living for for years ends up being the same problem. Or the new Batman versus Superman movie, which I really enjoyed, even though the critics didn't like it. Anybody see and like the Batman versus Superman movie? Okay, so the whole narrative in the Batman versus Superman movie, Batman gets mad at Superman because Superman brought General Zod, is that the guy's name? I just had a complete mental collapse there. What is that? Man of Steel. Yeah, it's called Batman versus Superman, isn't it? Or Man of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man of Steel was the original one, right? And then the Batman versus Superman. Batman gets mad at Superman because Superman brought the bad guys. And the whole story is um, demons aren't from below, they're from above. And so these people from Krypton are the demons. And so they go at it until they realize that there's a larger, greater enemy. So Superman and Batman, the superheroes, really aren't the superheroes anymore. They are the problems. So we're never fulfilled. We keep wanting answers and explanations and solutions. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, though, fulfills a lot of these desires that we have as being made in the image of God and as providing some 
perspective and picture on uh, the social ills of our time. It comprehensively explains the problem, which we're going to look at the root of next week. It's actually in chapters 17, 18, and 19 in the book, but we're going to start right away with the problem. We're not going to go through this book, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 22, all right? And we're not, we just can't do it. It would take me many, many, many weeks. However, we have a study guide already written up, chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of chapter 22 that goes through verse by verse, chapter at a time. If you want that, it'll be posted online. If you want to go through it as house churches, it's a 12-session study, so it's about two of the booklets that we use in our house churches. So we're going to look at that next week. It comprehensively explains the problem and provides a fulfilling answer. It moves us beyond the disaster. It moves us beyond the apocalypse, and it moves us beyond the dystopia into a place where there is finally some resolution. And so let's read, if you have your Bibles with you, I do not have this up on the screen, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. You all are going to go out and watch some apocalypses now. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined 
in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we see in this introduction, these 20 verses, we see the vision's source, we see its substance, we see its recipients, and we see its results. Source, substance, recipients, results. First of all, the source the source of the revelation is God the Father himself. Remember when in the Gospels and people are asking Jesus about the end of, end of the world and Jesus says, you know what, it is not for me or you to know these things. Only God in heaven knows these things and he will reveal them and disclose them to me at the right time. And you will know at the right time. So the revelation begins with God the Father. Describes him as him who was and who is and who is to come. The, the eternal being the eternal being. Jesus Christ is the man he gives the revelation to, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who was also the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and the one who is to come. Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness. And so John is being witness of this revelation and continuing the tradition of Jesus as the faithful witness of the word of God. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus is him who loved us and has freed us from our sins. And so we begin to see, you know, in our culture, we see our sins. We don't call them sins anymore. Occasionally you hear people call them sins. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if they have a church or religious background. Because generally we don't use that term anymore. But our sins are the cause of our social problems. And here we see at the beginning, we don't see how, we don't see anything other than Jesus has freed us from our sins by his, death, by his death and resurrection. And in that death and resurrection, he has made us a kingdom. And so we are going to see the kingdoms of the world. We're going to see the nations of the world, the governments of the world. And Jesus, is ha Jesus has his own government. He has his own kingdom. And it is set apart from the problematic kingdoms of the earth. And they are going to set themselves against him. But we can see right now that we are in our kingdoms, we are in our politics, we are in our governments, and we would like something new. We would like a new kingdom, a new politic, a new government. And so Jesus doesn't only save us from our individual sins, he is bringing an entire administration with him, and it will be a new kingdom. And he has made those who are in his kingdom priests, which means we serve as mediators between this world and between God. And so we are on mission as witnesses, like Jesus was, like John is. We are witnesses as priests. And the message is also from the Holy Spirit. It says seven spirits are before the throne of God, and those seven spirits are a, are a symbol. It's an image of the omnipresent 
Holy Spirit who covers the world and sees all things. And he fills, this spirit fills the Apostle John. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day. It's not in reference to a Sunday. It was a particularly strong Lordy day. He felt the presence of the, of the Lord through the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. And so the Holy Spirit is generating this ability within the Apostle John to understand and to see this vision. And then finally, John. John is the servant of Jesus and the bearer of witness to the gospel. And he, is in currently, he currently is in tribulation. He currently is in exile. He currently is, in his, is in his own personal apocalypse as he is suffering persecution because of his testimony to the gospel. And Jesus tells John to write these things down, so we come to the substance of the vision. And he says, these are the things that must soon take place. That's in reference to this, this set of passages throughout the book of Daniel where the angel, Mark, or, excuse me, the archangel Michael is giving a vision to Daniel. And he says, these are the things that must happen later. And so Revelation is tapping in to this vision that Daniel received, and it is an explanation about the end of the world. And what, what Revelation then is, 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 a, is an exploded explanation, a more detailed explanation about what was originally revealed in the book of Daniel. And those people in Daniel's time, Israel in exile. And so Israel had been captured by the Assyrians 150 years earlier. Israel was completely wiped out and spread across the Assyrian Empire. That people suffered its apocalypse. And, Ju and Judah and Benjamin were left, making up the last two tribes of Judah before Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar came along and laid Jerusalem to the ground, the temple to the ground, and the people of God were completely and utterly um, vanquished. And Babylon took what was left of Jerusalem and Judah and Benjamin into captivity. They were in exile. They were suffering their apocalypse. But God did not leave his people. He would fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and to Adam and Eve, saying that I will bring you a promised child who will destroy evil and bring peace and security to my people and will establish a global worldwide government. And so those people needed a vision, and God gave them a vision through Daniel. An apocalypse, a vision of hope. John is on Patmos, suffering as well for the word of God and for being a, a, a witness of the gospel. And we're going to see that the churches in Revelation, because there's seven churches that are, that are being addressed. Some of them are suffering persecution, and they need a vision of hope as well. They are suffering their apocalypses. They are suffering their worlds in, and it's not through the the television screen in a fictional narrative. It is real life. It is real life. And we're also going to see that there are churches who are relaxing in luxury and in apathy. They don't need a vision of hope. Those churches need a vision of judgment. And so not only is it hope for the people of God who are suffering, it is a vision of judgment for the people of God that better get their act together 
because there, there are people within those churches and the generations to follow in those churches that may not make it through the apocalypse, that may not survive the judgment of God. Because Jesus, it says, is coming with the clouds and all will wail or mourn. Now, you read that and it's like people are gonna be crying because they, are, they know that destruction is near. It's not the idea. The idea of it, it's a passage taken from Matthew and another passage also taken from Daniel. The, the mourning and the wailing is a wailing and a mourning that you experience when you come to the point of recognizing that you've been wrong all of your life and that you've been fighting against God all of your life and yet there was this man who died to save you and you recognize that for the first time and you break down crying. You break down crying. That is the wailing that this passage is talking about. The passage is talking about a global response to the gospel through which people from every tribe around the globe throughout all time will respond to. And then just John describes what he sees. He says he sees one like the son of man, another vision from the prophets, clothed in a long robe. And he doesn't go into, you know, it, you, you need to read Revelation really making an effort to picture in your mind what he is describing. Okay, that's part of the, part of the intent. He's clothed in a long white robe. He's got a golden sash and white hair, and his eyes are of fire. His feet are of burnished bronze, voice like the roar of many waters. His face is like the sun. And I asked myself, if you had a face like the sun, how could you see eyes that were on fire? It would all look like one big fiery face. And he's standing in the midst of these seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, in his right hand he holds seven stars and from his mouth comes a two-edged sword, which looks to be uncomfortable, but it is saying that Jesus' word will bring judgment and execution. And these, this letter, Revelation, is written to seven churches. Why seven? Seven means total or complete. So it's not just these seven churches that are in Asia Minor. It is all of the churches throughout all of the time. And these churches... That are, that are listed. These seven will somehow represent every church that's ever existed. We're going to hit that in a couple weeks. Every church that's ever existed will somehow be described by the descriptions given and the warnings given and the encouragements given to these seven churches. Some of the churches are about to lose the Holy Spirit because they have, they have left the gospel for so long that they are no longer going to be even a, a church and the spirit will be removed from them. And some of the churches are doing really, really well. They're small and they're poor and they're suffering for Christ. And they just need encouragement to keep pressing on. So we're going to look at those seven churches, but he is speaking to all the churches throughout all of the time. And then it's to whoever reads or hears, not only to these seven churches, but the book of Revelation has been read for 2,000 years by a lot of people, not in churches. And so not only is the, is the book of the apocalypse for the religious folks in the churches, it's also for anyone who reads it in the world. We as the churches of God are witnesses of these things. So as we look 
to read and to enter into the book of Revelation, we have to ask the question, what will be revealed to us? What will be revealed to us as a church? What will be revealed to us personally and in our families, in our own minds and hearts? Because that's what the book of Revelation does, it reveals. In that book, How to Survive the Apocalypse by Joustra and Wilkinson, they ask this, while humanity's atomic coming of age is necessary to its recurring destruction, it is not sufficient to cause an apocalypse. A cultural catalyst is required, and that catalyst is the technological babble. Okay, so think of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, which is the, the efforts of humanity to create a building that will reach the heavens, and they literally say, we will make a name for ourselves Rather than be representatives of the name of God, they want to make a name for themselves. And so it's this technological and political creation of Babel. They argue that the cultural catalyst to bring about an apocalypse is the technological Babel of postmodern hubris or arrogant ambition, which is the eclipse of earlier or higher times of knowledge. The sure confidence that modern humanity's independent powers of will progress quickly, it says, will progress apace. Had, has, do any of you know what the word apace means? I had never seen that word. I had to, that's why I have it in brackets. It means quickly. There is a confidence in our culture that modern humanity's independent powers of will progress quickly and they will restrain our pathological appetites. Here's what they're saying. Our culture, the dystopias and the apocalypse that it creates, none of them have solutions. Why? Because there's no solution. We used to be, at least in Western culture, a people that would long for a day, a future kingdom, a future rule, a future, a future that was positive, where there were solutions to our problems. We don't believe that anymore. But we do believe that we can keep ahead of our problems through technology, innovation, political manipulation, and we'll just keep moving that way. And we'll never have a destruction that requires a solution. It's arrogance, it's overconfidence, and that leads us to simply continue to entertain ourselves, like the capital citizens in the Hunger Games. Sector one, they were called sectors, sector one, they they entertain themselves through the Hunger Games, through the other 11 sectors or quadrants, or I can't remember what they were called, districts, thank you, districts. The other 11 districts sent their young people to be killed, and it was entertainment to the capital citizens. And so what we do, well, let me read this next quote. The savviest of these post-apocalyptic films recognize that the ultimate marker of apocalypse is not some yet to be enacted marker of depravity like cannibalism or environmental catastrophe. 
Rather, films like WALL-E, The Matrix, and David Cronenberg's prescient Videodrome and Existence suggest that the end of civilization is within our sights, literally. The apocalypse lies in our mass addiction to the entertainment spectacle, an apathy-causing narcotic that cleverly implicates the very film delivering us the warning. The last one. Seeking entertainment in the apocalypse is a luxury for the wealthy. The folks in Aleppo, if there, are, if there are any folks in Aleppo, aren't watching movies about the end of the world. They are living in the end of the world. Seeking entertainment in the apocalypse is a luxury for the wealthy, developed societies that don't have to encounter the consequence of systemic collapse and root violence on a daily basis. One of the warnings, in fact, the central warning to the people of God and to all of the people on the earth in the book of Revelation is exactly this apathy and this narcotic of entertainment and pleasure and wealth that keeps us oblivious to the true pain and suffering that's going on in the rest of the world and that really is at the heart of our problems. And so we come to the vision's results. The vision promises what it literally says is happiness. Verse three, blessed. Okay, we don't, again, another term we don't use a whole lot. Blessed are those who read and who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it. The word blessed is simply happy. Philosophers since the beginning of of time, since the beginning of philosophy, I should say, have said that the ultimate human goal, the ultimate human pursuit embedded within each and every person is the pursuit of happiness. And the book of Revelation starts out clearly. Happiness is going to be found by those who hear and read and keep what is written in this. True happiness, what we are all looking for. Personal story, and some of you know this and I've shared it publicly several times, I don't know when the last time was. But Revelation, the book of Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And in terms of life change, it has contributed, uh, it's at least the most, or maybe the second most significant book in my life. So when I was 16, living my life, under the narcotic of pleasure and entertainment and what 16-year-old young men pursue, sports and girls and whatever else, my future, looking forward to it, making money, doing something great with school, becoming an aerospace engineer, designing planes and missiles and bombs without consideration of what what planes and missiles and bombs would do to people. And then my personal world fell apart, my own little personal apocalypse, because we moved. So my football, my weightlifting, my friends, my girlfriend, everything that I knew at 16 years old. And so, you know, you remember when you were 16 years old, the world is pretty small. Well, that little small world fell apart and uh, turned to the anger-infused genre of metal music, another thing that 16-year-old young men do when they're angry. And uh, one of my favorite songs was Metallica's The The Four Horsemen which is a great song on its, one of its early albums called Kill Em All. 
they're still four angry men, but they have wives and children now and have settled down a little bit, but they're still really angry. Actually, their latest album was called uh, Programmed to, or no, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And it is probably their angriest album. And my mom heard me listening to it and singing it one day. And she said, you know, that is a story about the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. And I wasn't completely surprised. Metallica has a few songs narrating some significant events in the Bible. Anyway, that night, took my Bible, because I grew up as a good church-going kid, you know, Christian home type of thing, but not really making it mine. So I took my Bible, and I went down, and I read the book of Revelation in one sitting. And so what was revealed to me? What was revealed is that I was living my life for my own selfish pursuits. I wasn't, wasn't stricken by my sin. I was stricken by the ultimate worthlessness of what I was pursuing. Like, there is something going on with God in his work in the nations of the world throughout eternity past into eternity future. <laughs> and I don't think one second about those things in my daily life. I, I was just struck by the insignificance of my life and what I was doing with it. That's what struck me. The end, the telos, what I was doing. <laughs> and Jesus wins in the end. And Jesus' kingdom is in the end. And there aren't any planes, and there aren't any missiles, and there aren't any bombs. There's a lot of people. People from all over the world, throughout all time, every people group, every language. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna start living for Jesus. It was just like that. Just like that. I couldn't tell you anything technically about what the book of Revelation, you know, and all of its details and strange images. That what, that's not really what it's, in, you're supposed to read it and be shocked and awed into the insignificance of your life if it's not being lived for God and Jesus Christ and is looking towards the end of the world and its destruction of evil and the creation of a new world where there will be no more evil, no more pain, no more suffering. That's what the book of Revelation is intending to do. So we're gonna go through this book and we're gonna, we're gonna push towards that end as much as we can to help you see your life within a context of, of where things, all things, are headed. So let me pray and then we'll have some Q&A. Lord God. Thank you for this uh, amazing and beautiful book. Thank you for it. I personally thank you for it, God, just because of the effect that it had on my heart and your Holy Spirit, the gospel and Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and the power, the power that was extended at that moment that will ultimately consume all evil. So we look forward to that, Lord God. Look forward to that, and we thank you for this book, and so we would ask that you would have a tremendous impact on our hearts and minds, that the, that the book's intent would have its, 
its work in us as a church, as families, as individuals. In your son's name, amen.